Amen. Please stand with me as we share in the word this morning. Found in the book of John, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 in the New Revised Standard Version. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said, Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months wages would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among too many people? The word of God. Please be seated. We continue into this series, Own It. Turn to someone and say, Own It. Own It. Last week we talked about faith, owning our faith and what that looks like. Today I want to talk about owning our courage, owning your courage to do hard things. If you don't know this yet, by the time you leave today, I hope you know that you can do hard things. So turn to someone now and say, hey, you can do hard things. If you're watching from home, I want you to know you can do hard things. Let's dive right in here as we talk about owning our courage to do hard things. We find Jesus in chapter 6 of John coming onto the shore once again. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. So a couple of thoughts here as we prepare the context of this Johannine passage. First of all, there's a crowd that is following Jesus because they saw signs. They saw signs. Signs is one of these themes in the Gospel of John that keeps popping up. As you read and you study John, you'll recognize that signs keep coming up. Um, this is one of his themes basically meaning miracles or miraculous actions. So here we see it, signs. Secondly, this is the only miracle story besides the resurrection itself that shows up in all four Gospels. So because it shows up in all four Gospels, it should signify to us that something wonderful or significant or important is happening in this story because all of the Gospels report it, but John specifically does something different in his beginning, in, in the way that he introduces this uh, passage. The slight variation from the other Gospels says this, it was also called the Sea of Tiberias. And that slight variation from the other Gospels created something in me um, of, of curiosity. And I wondered if, if John was doing this parenthetically or, or if there was something here that he wanted us to dig for and look, look out for. Because uh, it doesn't take much in the way of word structures or phrases to change the whole context of something. 
This small little phrase could create a totally different perspective on this passage. It doesn't take much. I want to I wanna, uh, share a story from a few weeks ago from one of our power couples here at the La Sierra University Church. Uh, they're our, our pastoral couple. I got a picture of them here. Look at this couple. Now, you know how I know these are treasured pictures? Because I had to dig for them when I was at Berman University. And only treasures is hidden and protected. So I, I searched all of Lacombe to find this picture of our couple. On the left, our, our, our vivacious volleyball star, Kalmany. Yes. And on the right, our robust acronier base, Ben. <laughs> A couple weeks ago, when we were finishing up in between our series, I wanted to share the glorious gospel of a Tim Tam because they were so good. So I bought Tim Tams, had them ready, I had them in a bag, but I needed help to give them out to whoever was going to want them, right? So I come in, and Ben is in the front row, and I said, Ben, I need your help. And Ben says, okay, great. What do you need? I said, I need you to hold these for me. And when somebody gets up because they volunteer for it, I need you to go give it to them. Ben said, I got this, boss. I got this. Which, by the way, he calls everybody boss. At first, I was like, yeah, I'm your boss. And then I was like, but you call everybody boss. That's unfair. <laughs> He's like, I got you, boss. I got you. So he, he takes the Tim Tams. And I walk out. I walk back in. I come to the front row and next to Calmany. And Calmany just, just gives me this huge hug. She's like, oh, I love Tim Tams. I said, great, me too. I just, thank you for the hug. She's like, yeah, they're the best. I said, yes, they are. They're the best. And then I proceeded to get into the worship, and I'm sitting next to Calmy. And just before I come up to preach, I think to myself, where, where are the Tim Tams at? Where, where do they go? So I'm looking around. I said, I don't see the Tim Tams. And I said, Ben, where are the Tim Tams? Are they ready to go? And Ben says, Oh, uh, Kalmany has them. And I looked over to Ben, and I come and I said, hey, Kalmany. She said, yeah. I said, where are the Tim Tams? She's like, it's in my purse. <laughs> I love them. I said, great. That's wonderful. I love them too. Can you pull them out? And she said, why? <laughs> As if she was thinking, are we going to eat them right now? I said, oh, we need them to give out. She says, what do you mean? And I said, that. They're for people. She's like, no, Ben said these were for me. I said, oh, sweetheart, pull them out of your purse. <laughs> Calmity proceeds to do the shame of walk version of opening her purse. It was like, oh, my God. So, uh, she pulled them out with their tears. She wiped the Tim Tams and gave them to me. Later on, we talked about this. And, and as I was sitting in couples counseling therapy with these two, The, the discussion, I would say, was around the preposition for and from. Ben says, I said these were for Icky. Calmany says, no, you said they were from Icky. And we sat there for hours praying for the Lord to come. <laughs> because it only takes a little bit, right, to change the context of everything. And I wonder as John is... He puts in the Sea of Tiberias 
Just this small little phrase in the beginning as he, as he introduces us to John chapter 6. If there's something, something there, something uh, more beautiful, something nuanced that the hearers and later on the, uh, the readers can get from this. So I want us to take a look at this and explore the idea of why John included Tiberius. If you want, you can leave that picture for the rest of my sermon. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Tiberias was a city built in the year 20 of Common Era by Herod Antipas. He named it after the Roman emperor Tiberius and founded and built this town for pagan, as a pagan city to create trade, commerce, and economy. So there was very important, this was a very important structure because uh, this is where pagans can come. This is where people from around the world can come and create commerce and economy. So the Jewish people, different groups of, of Judaism, wouldn't go there. It was, it was not a place for them. And in fact, Tiberius was built in and around an ancient gravesite, ancient Hebrew gravesite. So they even considered that place an unclean place. So initially, they wouldn't go there. You couldn't get them to go there. They were quite offended by the city Tiberias. But Tiberias wasn't worried about who it was offended by or not. It just continued to grow. It flourished. It blossomed. If we consider that Jesus was moving around in his ministry at about 30 year common era, and Tiberius was birthed around 20. That means it's only been a decade since it was around by the time Jesus was moving through ministry. And it had just blossomed. Money and commerce and economy was growing. The, 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 the Roman Empire was feeling the consequences of this glorious little town that was, in fact, the biggest town in all of the area. With the quick expansion and growth of this major town, Tiberias, comes the strain of sustainable food sources. How does Tiberius keep up with the Joneses? We're growing, we've got, we're building, and, and, and there are more pagans and Romans and mixture of human beings that are coming into the city, and we're running it through the Roman economics, and so there is this desire to build and take and consume and live, and as it does, someone has to pay for all of this. Someone has to create food sustainability or consumption so that Tiberius can continue to grow. Who will lose for the sake of the Tiberian economics? Aubrey Hendricks writes in The Politics of Jesus, most peasant farmers had land holdings of less than six acres, of which an average of 1.5 acres was available for cultivation, hardly enough to support a family. That is, if they were fortunate enough to have saved their farms from outright seizure of the Romans or from dispossession for tax default, or from the machinations of the Herodians and their cronies, who it was estimated that owned half to two-thirds of the land in Galilee. So, those, so you see, the chosen people were displaced people. They were farmers, and yet they didn't have enough to take care of themselves. To make ends meet, most farmers either had to hire themselves out for wages to supplement their meager crops or go into debt, which was usually a worse alternative. 
This is what was happening among the people. They were dying to see a Messiah who would come and transform things. They were, they were waiting for this, this Savior to come and replenish their land, the land that was stolen from them, the land that they were displaced from. They were in pain. And this scenario is a very familiar scenario to them as they have it in their story and their lineage of the Egyptian economics. They know what it's like to be oppressed and displaced and hungry. And so they waited for a Messiah that could save them. This puts a face to these people. I don't know about you, but when I used to hear this story coming up, I used to think of like, you know, happy families coming in and they got their kids and, you know, they're singing a, a Sabbath song and we're going to see Jesus, and, you know, and they sit down and, and, and Jesus creates a big picnic and everyone is happy. I would imagine them wearing their, their Sunday best or their Sabbath best or their Tuesday best to come see Jesus. But this, in fact, is not the case. They are now underneath the, the, the heavy burden of an economic system that displaces them. They don't have enough to eat. The thousands of people who are coming saw the signs of the Messiah and figured that this is their freedom. And so they come here to be with Jesus. This large group of people, families, parents, and their kids were looking for the Messiah. Now, let's add the fact that as a careful reader of the Gospel of John, we recognize the theme, another theme, not just the science theme, but the theme that Jesus is the new, the, the Lord of Moses. Moses was a big name for them, very authoritative. And so as John writes, he's always comparing and contrasting Moses to Jesus because Jesus is the authoritative figure above and among Moses. We see it in chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and they received him not, like Moses. You remember that? Verse 17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. In verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law did right. So we see this over and over and over again. A man has ascended in chapter 3, verse 13, uh, up to heaven. No man has ascended up to heaven except for Jesus. So we see again, remember that story of the ascension of Moses. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There is this contrast in comparison to Moses. John wanted to make sure that it was clear to us that the authoritative power that they saw in Moses was greater and more eternal in Jesus. So, what have we seen in our story so far? From our readings, from verses 1 on, well, we notice that there's a large crowd who sees signs in Jesus, much like signs they may have noticed in Moses, right? With the, with the, just before the exodus, the plagues, this large crowd is mostly made up of peasant farmers displaced by the bustling, oppressive regulations of a Roman economy that has been pressed on them with this large new Mecca trade known as Tiberius. They are pressed. These poor, low farmers are pressed underneath that. They are now struggling because of that press with the mentality of scarcity. And the mentality of scarcity is a mentality of slavery. The mentality of scarcity is the mentality of slavery. 
This is important to note because today there are many of us who live with the mentality of scarcity and don't realize that that is also the mentality of our slavery. So Jesus, he went up to a mountainside, verse three. He's facing this large crowd that sits by the shore of a water place, reminiscent of Moses at the Red Sea with a large group of people just before God is going to do something miraculous. In verse 4, we, we are told by John that it is near Passah, Passover is coming. So there's a, there's a time for, for this Passover, and we know that Passover began with Moses and the people just before they left to head out towards the Red Sea. By the way, Passah, this Passover that we even uh, uh, celebrate today, we will be celebrating next week. We will be partaking of communion, and, and we'll be doing the Eucharist. And, we're, and, and if you've never done a, a communion service with Adventists, you're going to enjoy next week. Amen? Because we go all out. We, like, when you come here, we're going to wash your feet. So next week, wash your feet before you come to church. No, I'm just playing. Don't wash your feet. Just come to church. It'll be good. We recognize the comparing and the contrasting, the same, the likeness, and the difference between Moses and Jesus. And now we are into our text, verse 5. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to him to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, six months wages would not buy enough bread to each to uh, to feed for each of them to get a little bit so jesus says hey where are we going to get the bread philip's like jesus we are broke we got we've been following you and you're homeless you won't have a home to lay your head down on you where, where are we going to get this money jesus and i i believe that maybe in philip's great mind of practicality says we should send them away because we don't have enough to take care of the issue jesus asks this question to philip only to see where philip was again our minds is tuned in with moses it floats back to this exodus story in the wilderness where they experience god providing manna from heaven Jesus, the bread of life, asked Philip where they could gain access to bread. Philip, from a philosophical economics of scarcity, answers how they don't have the source for the bread. How they don't have it. Jesus says, where would we attain the bread? Jesus, that's what he says. And Philip says, we don't have enough. You see, there's a difference in their conversation. They're talking past each other. Jesus, the bread of life, who knows where to get the miracle, asks Philip where. Philip, in turn, from the economics of scarcity, says how we don't have enough to take care. Jesus, the bread of life. A philosophical economics of scarcity says there isn't enough for everyone, so take care of yourself. This philosophical economics of, of scarcity says that no one will care for you 
Self-preservation is priority. So look out for you because if you don't look out for you, no one will look out for you. There's a subtle suggestion there that our God isn't big enough to care for all of us. We don't say that. They didn't say that. But that's the subtle idea here of this scarcity economics. And so whatever you do, don't do anything that will cause you inconvenience or hardship. Don't leave yourself exposed because if you do, there's not enough return of investment or return of interest that will make your pain, your inconvenience, your hardship worth it. Don't put yourself out there. Don't do it. The Roman economics isn't going to do it. Tiberius is not doing it. And we certainly shouldn't do it. We are peasant farmers. All we have is this. I could imagine there were many families there with food, but none of them wanted to bring it out. Why? Because if I bring my food out and somebody else eats it, who then doesn't eat? Me. The economics of scarcity. But here's the thing. The bread of life brings manna where manna once was not. The bread of life spoke into chaos and life and warmth and light came forth. The bread of life brings new skin where leprosy once thrived. The bread of life brings hope where hope was lost. Reconciliation to the divided, belonging to the outcast, clothes to the naked, and friendships to the enemies. The bread of life, broken, devoured, and killed, repels even death, death's self, so that the universe in chorus can proclaim, O death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? The bread of life brings abundance. And so I wonder how often our courage to do the hard things fails us because we spend too much time around the desk of philosophical scarcity and not enough time around the table with the bread of life. There are hard things that we deal with and struggle through, and yet sometimes I think that the way we operate is we function from a place of scarcity, and we first ask, how do I take care of me before we take care of we? And in this space, there is a young boy who dares to say, I will not think about myself first, but I am going to use the abundant bread of life who I see in Jesus to make miracles happen. Oh, that we would be this church. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter, Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? And you know what I really think Andrew was doing? I think Andrew found his lunch and was like, Oh, come with me, son. Come, come with me. Come with me. Let me see Jesus. Jesus, we got lunch. There's not enough for everybody, but there's enough for us. And I, I almost think that, you know, he's, he's trying to honor Jesus in this sense. And he, he wants to do what is best. But in his mind, he just can't figure out if there's enough for everyone. So he's like, well, if there's not enough for everyone, let's at least have enough for us. Again, we see this philosophical economics of scarcity in the question. But what are they among so many people, as Andrew would say? However, this meager boy and his humble lunch is a contrast to Philip, to Andrew, and to Tiberius. He proclaims a protest against the movement that is so prevalent in his world around him. 
He's not worried as the peasant farmers are about what he has left. He only wants to present that before Jesus. All he knew thus far with his experience of the signs was that Jesus was doing with the sick things that no one else could do. Jesus was bringing healing, and everyone who came were able to experience that healing, and there was enough for everyone. And if Jesus can do that with the sick, then maybe Jesus can also do that with his lunch. There was a risk to this young boy. He knew he didn't have enough. He knew he didn't have much. And if he gave up his food to Jesus, there is a chance that Jesus and the disciples might eat it and he would be left hungry. This is no small thing to offer in a world where food scarcity, greed, and self-preservation was rampant. But doing what is right and doing what is easy is not the same thing. When we are called to do right, we are to dig deep into courage and move forward. And as I've said in the beginning, we can do hard things. Turn to the person and say, you can do hard things. Tell someone else, you can do hard things. We come from the DNA of the bread of life. We don't have to be confined by the ideology of scarcity. We must look forward to each day presenting us with a choice to dig into courage and do hard things. What hard things did you have to face this week? My elementary kids, who a lot of them went to Camp Marie, what hard things do you have to deal with this week? What kind of uh, 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 using the right words and, and, and the bullying that might happen around you? And you have to be the agent of goodness. To my high school kids, who, uh, young people who are constantly faced with challenges about identity and, and, and being fulfilled and being good and courteous, what kind of challenges do you face? To our, our university students who are called to integrity, to our parents who are called to raise, raise our children well and raise them right, we are constantly faced with hard things in our lives. What is testing your courage? Have you spent any time at the table with the bread of life or at the desk of scarcity? Each day holds a surprise, says Henry Nowen. But only if we expect it can we see, hear, or feel it when it comes to us. Let's not be afraid to receive each day's surprise. Whether it comes to us as a sorrow or as joy, it will open a new place in our hearts, a place where we can welcome new friends and celebrate more fully our shared humanity. So Jesus brings this boy forward, gives thanks, and begins to pass out the food. And I can't help but begin to wonder that maybe as the people are awakened from their economics of scarcity, from their economics of Tiberius, to something different as they watch this little boy, the least of them, give his everything to Jesus. I begin to wonder what happens in their heart when Jesus gives thanks and begins to pass. How many of them begin to reach deep into their own reserves that was hidden, that was protected, or that was previously unwilling to be shared? 
And, and, and the miracle happens on this day, at least for a moment, that they experience kingdom economics where the bread of life boldly comes from God through each other to bless their neighbor. I wonder as they're watching this little young boy do his thing, if they say, whoa, look at, he gave his, you know what, we do have some extra bread. Maybe we should pull it out. Oh, look at him go, hey, honey, you know what, his fish is quite meager. We've got a bigger piece of fish. And as Jesus begins to give thanks and bless and pass the basket, someone might say, hey, that was that boy's fish. Let me put something else back in that basket. And as they pass, they begin to give and take, and the community begins to flourish so much that at the end, when Jesus sends them out, they have more than enough because they move from the mentality of scarcity to the living bread of life. All because a boy was bold enough to step up and say, oh, I can do hard things. Maybe the miracle is that Jesus had, because he can, because Jesus can, had a basket and he magically, miraculously started pulling out bread. Right, boom, you, hey, baguette for you, hey, croissant for you, praise the Lord, ah, salmon, yeah, tilapia, happy Lord, happy Sabbath. Yeah, that's good. But also, maybe there was an awakening among the people, and that's the true miracle that Jesus created with this boy. That I don't have to live in self-preservation in me first, that I can pour in, and as we all begin to pour in, something beautiful happens in our community where there is enough for all. We can do hard things. Courage to you. Um, this is a saying that I love in my house. You can do hard things. My wife and I say it all the time to our kids. We, uh, I, I walked in the other day, and... Uh, <laughs> I walked into my, mom, to my wife telling my daughter that. She's like, you, you're from strong women. You can do hard things. And I was like, dang, uh, I'll just leave right now. I'm just back out, right? And she's like, no, but you're, you're strong. And Michaela's like, okay, I can do this. She's like, yes, strong women. And I just want to be like, yes, you're strong women. Go, strong women. You can do hard things. And uh, this, is a, this is just a saying that we do all the time when, when our kids are like, oh, I don't want to. I can't. This is too hard. And it's usually, usually, not always, but about 99.976% of the time in the morning when we try to go to school. I don't know if any other parent has to deal with this, right? Where when you put them to bed, they're like angels. And then when you wake them up in the morning, they're like angels of death. It's weird. Like, what happened? Like, when we went to bed, you were the, yeah, and then now, ah. And my kids are like, oh, dad, I don't want to go to school. School is so hard. It's tough. And oh, dad, I can't. And I always say, hey, look at me, guys. You can do this because you can do hard things. Oh, dad, but it's so far. We live two minutes and 25 seconds away from the school. <laughs> right? It's so far, dad. We're never going to make it. We're going to make it. We live two minutes and 35 seconds away from the school. We got this. You can do hard things. I don't know. And I just keep repeating, you can do hard things. We can do hard things. And I want you to know it. And the reason why I know that to be true is because they may not at this age have dug deep enough into their DNA, but I'm a part of their DNA. And I've seen the lineage they come from, and I know that their lineage can do hard things. I've been listening to stories of my grandfather all his life, who as a grown man, older, with kids, decides that he will finally go to school. So he has to get on a ship 
sell everything he has, and move to a different country so that he could learn the Bible so that he can become a pastor. And I know that he had to go through tough things, but he did it. And then when he comes back, he leaves his eldest son there to go to school. So every time his eldest son had to come back from school and go back, he had to take a boat. They didn't have money. My grandfather made about $2 a month on the island for being a pastor. That's it. My father would ride on the, on, the, on the ship, bow there and back. And there was no food sometimes. And he had to be hungry and he was cold, but he was there. So he would travel to, to school and back on a ship for days. I know they come from lineage that can do hard things. And I think of my sister who has a learning disability, who struggles with dyslexia, and, 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 but did not let anything stop her, didn't worry about how long it took her to get through school. She was going to graduate. She worked so hard, she finally graduated from high school and was able to go to college. She's got a dad who had to work through immigration issues, who knew that he didn't have enough money, and yet, because of the goodness of God through the church and families who would dare to pour into uh, a migrant person, could only be here today because of the church. And so when I look them in the eyes and I say, you can do hard things. I'm making a double statement. Yes, as an individual, as, 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 as my kids, I believe in you. I'm going to pour into you. Of course you can do hard things. But I'm also saying, I know your DNA. I know where you come from. I know your lineage. And there's a time when you're going to need to dig deep into that place. But when you dig deep, you will find that the well is well. The church... I know we can do hard things because you come from the DNA of the bread of life. And maybe we haven't dug in deep enough. Maybe the, the systems around us, the systems of scarcity has, has got a grip, a grip on us. Maybe, maybe we've, we've been sitting in self-preservation. Maybe we've been trying to make sure that, that we are okay. I, I want to tell you, there is, a, there is a God who can do all things who created you in God's image and who empowers you to live courageous lives for the goodness of others. So leave this place today knowing your DNA, where you come from, because you can do hard things.